Can you think of a physical object or cultural practice that is so ingrained into your regional identity that if you were to abandon or condemn it, it might shock your neighbors? Imagine living on the North Shore of Oahu and taking a moral or ethical stance against surfing, diving, and beach life, or living in Nebraska, as I did for almost a decade, and forswearing Husker football, or living among rural Montana ranchers and farmers and making a principled stand against firearms. Well, that is precisely what Bryce Anders did. Welcome to Writing Westward. I'm your host, Brendan Rensing. And today we speak with award-winning author and current Montana rancher and farmer, Bryce Andrews, about his new book, Holding Fire, A Reckoning with the American West. Thanks for listening. For new listeners, allow me to take a moment to explain a bit about writing westward and myself. Each episode features a conversation with people writing about the North American West. Historians, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, sociologists, and others. By showcasing their work, I hope to spark your curiosity to think more deeply about the region, its lands and environments, and the histories and experiences of the peoples who call it home. If a writer or topic intrigues you, you can find links to their work in the show notes or at writingwestward.org. And if you have a moment, please do subscribe, share links with friends, leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using to listen, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and send in some feedback. Writing Westward is supported by the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University, where I, Brendan Rensink, serve as Associate Director and an Associate Professor of History. For better or worse, this is a one-man operation. With me playing role of host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, and everything else. All tasks for which I have no training. But I am passionate about the North American West, so this difficult work is well worth the excuse to read more books and talk to interesting people. At the end of each episode, I'll include a little bit more information about me and my scholarship, and about the Red Center, our public programming and projects, and funding opportunities that you could apply for. With that, let me introduce a little bit more about today's guest and why we're talking to them. Bryce Andrews is an award-winning author, originally from Seattle, and who has spent the majority of his adult life as a rancher and farmer in western Montana. His first book, Bad Luck Way, A Year on the Ragged Edge of the West, published in 2014, won the Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers Award, the Reading the West Book Award for Nonfiction, and the High Plains Book Award for both nonfiction and debut book. His second book, Down from the Mountain, The Life and Death of a Grizzly Bear, published in 2020, won the Banff Mountain Book Competition, and was a Montana Book Award Honor title and the Amazon Best Science title for 2019. His new book, Holding Fire, A Reckoning with the American West, published by Harper's and Collins imprint Mariner Books in 2023, is a memoir of his personal relationship with guns and how a particular 357 pistol he inherited began to weigh on his mind. The intersection of settler violence and conquest of the American West that his forebearers were party to, and the contemporary realities of gun violence. As a rancher, guns are tools for Andrews. But unlike the rifles he used to hunt, the pistol had been manufactured for a singular purpose, to kill people. A purpose that caused a growing discomfort for Andrews. 
In Holding Fire, Andrews leads us through years of wrestling with this, up to his final decision to transform the tool of violence and destruction into one of creation and environmental restoration. Bryce's approach is personal and introspective, not at all prescriptive or accusatory. It should inspire many of us to think about the objects or practices in our lives that may be rooted in troubling pasts or troubling presents. His thoughtful meditations should embolden all of us to look inward and discover how we can more actively engage in making our worlds a better place, whether in the West or elsewhere. Bryce Andrews, welcome to Writing Westward. Thank you so much for having me. Is it as snowy in Montana as it is here in Utah, the never-ending winter? You know, it's been a it's been a wet winter here for us, um, but our little corner has been fairly warm. All the snow is melted off now, so it it feels a little bit different up here. Hmm. Every time it melts off here, and we think we're done, we wake up in the morning and everything is white again. But, uh, I mean, you know, there are times of year when when you really wish for a winter like that. Certainly, yeah. particularly particularly if you're in agriculture. Yeah, well, with our drought, we we need it. Um, I'm really excited to uh, talk with you about your book. Um, and um, since it's a memoir of sorts, um, it's probably appropriate to spend a little more time on your backstory, your, your personal history, maybe more so than we do with a lot of guests. Um, so could you offer us kind of like a 30 second chronology of where you're from, where you grew up, where you've lived and kind of what you've done? Sure. Um well, I was born and raised in Seattle, Washington, um, which is to say pretty far away from the life I've lived as an adult. Um, I, I moved from Washington uh, to Montana as soon as I was done with college. And I did that because I have always been, you know, intrigued by, interested in, uh, you know, the the West, the American West and the work of ranching and, and ranching um, in one form or another has sort of been the substance of my professional life. So I moved out here, uh, moved to the upper end of the Madison Valley, which directly adjoins Yellowstone National Park um, and is just a beautiful, wild, um, fairly intact ecosystem and started working on a ranch there as a ranch hand and um, learned the trade of agriculture. Um, Specifically, you know, I learned uh, the form of ranching that prioritizes you know, ecological health and the improvement of pasture land. Um, and, and that's really been my life. You know, I've worked as a, a ranch manager. Um, I've worked with ranchers and farmers on large carnivore issues. Um, and, and now my wife and I, um, you know, it's, you know, 20 years on from when I first kind of started on this road. Um, but we own a place of our own. Um, we raise grass finished beef, um, and we grow raspberries, uh, about half an hour north of Missoula here in Montana. So you had a fairly suburban upbringing. Were you in suburban Seattle? No, I was in urban Seattle. Downtown, um, okay. Yeah, uh, my my dad uh, worked at the university there. Um, he was the director of the art museum. We lived, you know, probably as the crow flies, uh, two miles from you know the heart of Seattle. Um, and so I grew up in that you know world where you know, an art opening was a much more common occurrence in my event in my life than like a, a hay harvest. So um, these are two very different worlds. They are. They are. And I still feel like in some ways I stand with a foot in each of them. And in many ways, that is a big part of what inspires me to to tell stories, uh, because I think, you know, you're sort of 
looking at things a little bit sidelong when you have when when you live somewhere that's pretty far away from the culture and the ecology you grew up in. Uh, and where did you go to college and what did you study? I went to uh for undergraduate I went to Whitman College um in Walla Walla, so southeast corner of Washington out in the Palouse. Yep. Um and uh, I studied uh environmental studies with a writing emphasis. Um and it was interesting. I, was, I think I was the second or third student to um, go through that kind of experimental program. You know, that it, it wasn't a, a track for students until just before I got there. Um, but it was such an interesting thing because the way it was structured, and I worked with this very talented uh, professor named Don Snow. Um, and Don's been a major voice and player in the world of environmental letters, I think, you know, for longer than I've been around, certainly. Um, and it was so cool because it it really prioritized, you know, this this sort of like ah, this this desire to exist at the confluence between literature and truly informative work that shows us something about the way we're living with the natural world. So I just I took to it and liked it. And it always felt like a fitting counterpoint to me for the more practical work of of agriculture that was was attractive to me, too. I mean, there's a tradition of this, you know, like cowboy poetry and, um, you know, maybe it's something about being out there uh, in these wide open spaces that, you know, stirs the heart and leads people to literary pursuits. Yeah, you, you might be right about that. And and it, I mean, it could be something as simple as just pure desperation. You know, the, <laughs> you stare at the back end of a cow long enough and you want to have a different thought pretty badly. Boredom, um, maybe. <laughs> it, boredom, but it, I, I mean, there is something more than boredom you know, that drives you to do it because one of the things that's so moving and interesting about the work of ranching as I've known it um, is that you spend much more time than most people just looking at the natural world. Um, and you spend time, if you ranch in the parts of the American West where I have, you spend time along this sort of ragged edge of, of the domesticated sphere. Um, so you see a lot of wild animals. And you also engage with them in ways that are more complicated and sometimes more difficult um, than, say, somebody who's come to Yellowstone to look at bison. Uh, and I found that really interesting. And, and I think a lot of my writing comes out of a lot of experience with that tension. When you grew up uh, in Seattle, so as, as a Western historian, uh, Western historians think a lot about um, identity and we think a lot about the West as um, like per capita, it's the most urban population in the United States. You know, the urban West is a thing and it has to be a part of the many Western identities, but it's not the Western identity that people usually think of first, kind of, you know, mm -hmm. like say ur urban Seattle. Um, so I I'm curious, you know, as you moved from Seattle out to Montana and now, you know, some 20 years later, what, what is your identity? Do, do you view it as a kind of tr traditional rural Western identity, or does it have still kind of these Pacific Northwest inflections from Seattle? What it's kind of Westerner are you? It's certainly closer to the latter thing you're describing. Um, you know, anytime, one of the thing I, things I noticed really quickly is that anytime I started to think of myself as a traditional rural Westerner, there were plenty of people on hand to tell me that I was not and would never be one. Um, you know, I think and that's, what we're gonna what we're gonna get to in your book maybe reinforces that. Sure, <laughs> if yeah. Some of your neighbors have read it. 
<laughs> I, I think, I think so. You know, I mean, I, I, because of what the trajectory of my life has been, um, I've often stood kind of on the edge or the outside of, you know, small communities, ranching communities I've been in. I mean, people, I have a lot of, I have a lot of friends, um, and this is the substance of my, my life, but at the same time, you know, I never really let go, so, never really let go of some of the things that I brought with me from the coast and from that urban progressive, um, nonviolent upbringing that my parents gave me. Um, and I, I used to feel oddly, you know, I used to feel at times ashamed of the things that were part of my life and my identity that didn't match the world I had chosen. Um, but increasingly I've become very proud of them and come to, you know, feel like, in fact, those might actually be the, you know, some of the more valuable or interesting or unique parts of, of what allows me to write about this place. Were you aware of those tensions, say, when you were a teenager spending some summer months in Montana, you know, doing some kind of ranch work, um, you know, before then returning back to Seattle during high school or thing? Were you aware of this kind of tension of these two worlds that you were trying to inhabit? Yeah, but but I wasn't um, I wasn't giving a fair shake to the world I was coming from. You know, I was aware of them, but I was just so deeply enamored of the the both the a- actual and the mythic qualities of of the sort of life of the cowboy. Um, that's what I wanted to be, and it's what I wanted to do. And I think you know, I am pleased with the degree to which I followed my desire to do that and to to live that way. Because I think a lot of people, you know, entertain <laughs> dreams of all sorts as as children, and, and they don't follow them the way I followed mine out here. But, you know, so much of my experience of doing that work and living that life has been an immersion in the complications and the contradictions of it. Um, and at first, you know, this is sort of, you know, getting into what holding fire is about, but that used to really bother me and upset me and, and I struggled with it. Um, but increasingly, I'm coming to understand that, that that's what makes life in this place interesting. And, and that's where I hope to find my way forward in this landscape. What about in the opposite direction? So you, when you were in Montana as a, you know, as a young kid, you felt uncomfortable about your Seattle kind of identity, if we can put it that. What about in the other direction when you'd return back to Seattle, you know, back to high school, living in this very urban, progressive, kind of artsy fartsy, you know, (laughs) world of pacifist parents? How did that world view this new, the trappings of this new kind of Montana identity or interests that you were holding? Well, I think it's, it's complex because one of the things, at least in my experience of the urban West, as you to use to borrow your terminology from earlier, is that there's still a deep vein of, of um, idealization of the, the rural cowboy version. You know, you can find people who have these sort of nearly contradictory understandings of of their own divergence from that past, but also their own attachment to it. So it was complicated when I'd come home. But one thing that was very simple and important is that if I would come home, you know, either from, you know, trips when I was a high schooler or, or later after I'd been out there living and working, if I brought violence or cruelty specifically to animals home, um, the world I had come from served as a mirror 
Um, and it was not always a flattering thing that I saw there. So, I mean, I think a great example would be, you know, my mother's treatment of dogs. <laughs> my mother treats dogs like, like children. <laughs> um, you know, she, we only ever had one, but, you know, she treated the dog with great respect and constant kindness. And, you know, I maybe treat our farm dog with a little bit more rigor and discipline, I would say. Um, but I also have never forgotten that there's something really important about maintaining kindness to animals, you know, and, and slewing away from, you know, the, the sort of violence and dominion that characterized a lot of the relationships I saw between animals and people in my work. Um, so I, I guess, I guess all that's to say that going home often served as a mirror in which I could see the ways in which my work and my life were changing me for good or for, for ill. So it sounds like these tensions and it, it's, it's what really propelled you forward. It's what kind of formed who you are. It wasn't in the comfort of being in one place and knowing exactly how you fit, but in the going back and forth that, mm -hmm. you know, really caused, well, and that's what makes for an interesting life as well in general. Um, so what was it specifically kind of about uh, the, the cowboy ranch life that you found so attractive? Or was it the landscapes? Like, what was it that from early age, you're like, that's it. That's where I'm going to live my life. That's what I want to do. I think, I think a lot of it was the land. You know, I always felt this sense of claustrophobia in the Northwest where I grew up. And it has to do with, you know, the, I mean, oddly, it has to do with how sweet and wonderful and fertile that landscape is. You know, everything grows, the growth pushes in on you, the clouds stack up above the rain and there's more clouds above the clouds. And, you know, I just always felt this desire to be in expanse, you know, and I remember we would, we would, often go east in the summer. My dad loved to fish in Montana. And so we would drive over the Cascades. And And I remember when, you know, first Eastern Washington and then finally Montana would open up, I would just feel this sense of lightness, you know, like my heart spread out. And it made me really, really happy just to be there. And I think at an early age, because um, my godparents are um, ranchers uh, out you know, outside of Billings in central Montana. And I, I I learned from them at an early age that ranching could be a way of looking at looking at and living close to the land that made a lot of sense to me. So, you know, there was a little more substance than just like cowboy dreams in it. There was a very real response in in my heart and soul to the landscape. And there was some actual knowledge of the work. Um and I think what I really loved about the work was that it was it was challenging and different every day and that it was also creative. That's something that I really don't want lost in the shuffle when I talk about, you know, the violence in the way we've pursued ranching in the West. But I love the creative part of it. I love the way in which you, if you're doing it well, you're raising, you're, you're creating food from a landscape without completely destroying the native ecology of it. And that's something that's very hard for us to do as a species. You know, when we, we crop a field, we take it, you know, we take it down to the dirt and we build it up again, exactly as we want it. But, but cattle ranching in the West, if it's performed well, um, you know, they're surviving off native plants and that's pretty amazing. Yeah. It takes some creativity, some critical thought, um, problem solving. It's interesting. I'm also, I'm from Bellingham, from Northwest Washington. And 
um, I kind of had the opposite experience when we would go camping in Eastern Washington, or we'd go on these road trips and you'd get to those, or I, like I spent almost a decade in Nebraska, like these big open spaces. And mm -hmm. I felt a little too exposed on that wide open landscape. Although the big skies are something, but I always saw myself gravitating back towards, I want mountains. I want the dense evergreen. I kind of find comfort in, whereas in the opposite way, some people then, you know, from Montana might go to downtown Seattle and feel really claustrophobic, right? They need more, need more space. <laughs> um, yeah, there seems like there's a, you know, there's a, there's a spectrum of exposure that feels good, you know, because I, I know I've gone, I know when I go too far east, you know, I get out on the plains and all the moisture sucks out of my skin. And all of a sudden I think, oh man, I need to go a couple hundred miles back west. You know, I live in, I live in this, uh, you know, and, and I live in this valley. I live on the Flathead Reservation, just north of Missoula uh, in the Jocko Valley. And it's a phenomenally interesting place because it borrows ecologically or exists on the ecotone between um, the, the Northwest and, and the Rocky Mountain West. I mean, there are little pockets of cedars in these mountains. And every time I see them, it gives me joy, you know, because I feel like I'm closer to home than I did when I was working out near Yellowstone. You know, there are places where, you know, ferns grow. And I just, it's amazing to just see, you, you know, I always thought of it as sort of a duality. I was either on the coast or I was in the, the West, you know, which is an odd thing to say. Um, but I... I realize the ways in which they overlap and feel like I've found a place that actually makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, blending some of those environmental worlds you're you're used to. Um, well, let's uh, kind of move to the main topic of your book: this kind of personal reckoning and transformation you went through with your relationship with firearms. Mm -hmm. Which, for many, um, if we think of kind of the, the mythologized West and uh, you know, firearms are, are prominent in that, in some of those Western identities, um, so sometimes more in mythology than in reality. But for a lot of people who consider themselves Westerners, firearms are are, are uh, an important part of their life and of, uh, of culture. Um, but uh, as you write, you, you, and you already mentioned, you know, you were raised by uh, self-proclaimed pacifists uh, in Seattle, um, which probably weren't too thrilled um, with guns. Um, so, what was what were your but but this this first this uh, three fifty seven uh, handgun that you write uh, most of the book about uh, was a family heirloom that was passed down to you. Um, tell us how that comes into your possession and um, what your kind of early relationship with it was. Sure. Well, the, the gun in question, which was a Smith & Wesson 357 uh, Magnum, uh, came to me. It was my grandfather's, and it came to me, um, actually came to me just before he died. Um, you know, he had moved to a nursing home, and obviously it wasn't a great fit there. Um, and, uh, you know, he, so it passed from him to my father, and my father basically, you know, said, I, I don't want this thing. It it belongs out there with Bryce. Um, in Montana. And, you know, that's something that would have made my grandfather, I think, very happy uh, to know that I had that heirloom and that I was using it in the course of my work, which I certainly did. Um, but I remember that gun from when I was a child. You know, I grew up in a gunless house, you know, so gunless that 
the first time I was presented with a toy gun, I, I held it up sideways and I looked through the trigger guard because I thought it was a camera and I pushed down what I thought was like the shutter of the camera and went click. And my parents were really happy with that. You know, that, that, <laughs> that was a parenting really, win. They're like, Hey, we did that, something it was a, right. <laughs> a parenting win for sure. Um, and, uh, but my, my grandfather had, had two firearms, you know, he had served in world war two and guns had been part of his life in a way that they weren't part of my father's uh, or mother's. And, um, he had a, a revolver, this revolver, which always had this sort of dark magnetism for me. And, and he had a, a rifle that I thought was really beautiful. And of the two, quite honestly, I, I would have rather inherited the rifle, but he gave it away to a neighbor before he, um, you know, or earlier. Um, but so I, so this gun came to me and um, when I first got it, I had this feeling of like, that it was perfect for the life that I was living, that it was perfect as an object because it was beautiful. It was a wonderfully made object. Um, and I carried it. So I would carry it in the mountains, you know, when, when we were in areas that had a lot of bear activity or, or, you know, if I was camping high up in the mountains and I was afraid, um, you know, I'd have it with me or if I needed to put down, um, you know, a cow with a broken leg, I used it. So I used this gun as a tool. Um, but really where things became very complicated for me and, and where the story of the book um, really focuses on the gun is, is the gun became more than a tool to me. You know, I began to feel, I began to feel like I was keeping it too close and that it was becoming for me, what it has become, what guns have become for so many people in not just the West, but in America, which is a totemic object and a, a portion of their identity. And I, as I felt that happening for me, I also understood how unhealthy and dangerous um, it was. Now I talk about this like it's a simple process. Um, what I'm really talking about is like, you know, this tool that was part of my life and I kept using it and carrying it and I'd spend dark nights alone in a barn, you know, barn dominium, this little apartment I framed into a, a barn um, when I was managing a ranch um, and spend all this time alone with it. And so the process that I'm making sound simple and, and quick was really this sort of years long accumulation of doubts and troubles surrounding what the gun meant for me, but also the role that weapons like that had played in, um, in the, the settlement uh, and conquest of, of the West. Um, and the, so the book really, for me, becomes particularly interesting as the gun took on those other meanings for me. Did you have different feelings between that as as a pistol versus um, a rifle that you'd be using um, on the ranch? Did, and, and especially in terms of kind of the cultural meaning or the identity that as it started to become entangled with your identity, they're both tools sure. um, that you're using in your work. Is there a difference though in how you, in your relationship that built with them? Yeah, for me there was, um, and it has to do with a couple things. I think. First and foremost, it has to do with the fact that they're tools for two different purposes. You know, the Smith & Wesson 357 was designed for killing people. It was designed um, around the time of prohibition. I'm sure there are people who know much more about this than I do and will no doubt correct me. But essentially, it was designed because um, uh, the police uh, needed a round that could punch through a bulletproof vest or a car door um, and still have enough energy to uh, kill somebody. And 
you know, so for me, that's a very different intention than a rifle that's designed specifically for doing what I do every year, which is going into the mountains and hunting elk to feed myself and my family. Um, one of those was much easier for me to make peace with than the other. Um, the other thing about a handgun is that it is designed to be with you more often. You know, or, or it's a big deal to carry a rifle around in the course of working. It's a much smaller deal um, and much less trouble to have a, a pistol with you. Um, it's like a cell phone on your belt. A little bit. A yeah. pistol on your belt, it becomes more of a, a natural appendage of sure you know, of your body i will say it's a very heavy cell phone <laughs> um <laughs> you know in many ways um, a 357 that's a that's that's not a small pistol i mean no, they, get this lot, one, they get a lot bigger but um, they do and this this was a very um you know this one had a, a longish barrel on it too um but the other thing i would say about it is that the difference for me too had to do with the inheritance so my family my father's family has been on the North American continent since um, the Plymouth colony. And, and so because of that, different generations of my family were involved in different ways in the Western movement and expansion of European settlers across the continent. And so for this weapon, which was very much um, born out of the tradition of, of weapons that were used in what many people call winning the West, um, it, that freighted it with a little bit more meaning. It made it heavier to me. The fact that it had come from that line of my family mattered in this case. So you start to have a, a more troubled relationship or uncertain relationship with this firearm. And you eventually come to the decision that you want to, you need to do something with it. Um, mm -hmm. You need to uh, br break this relationship uh, that, that you have with it. What are, and we'll get to what you eventually do, but what are some of the options that that ran through your head or that you thought about and, and why didn't you choose them? Well, the first thing I thought is, why don't I just do what everybody does with guns? I'll just sell this and then it won't be in my life anymore. But I had some you know, at times when I would go into a gun store and think about this, I would often be faced with the fact that if I let go of this object, it would go into hands that were pretty darn likely to be less thoughtful than mine in terms of its use and abuse. Um, so that was one thing. And, and that made me think, you know what, I will not. I mean, there were a couple particular interactions that I had with people who were, you know, overtly racist <laughs> or um, just deeply problematic in all sorts of ways, um, where I thought, you know what, I'm not selling this thing. Well, people like this guy exist in the world to buy it. And it, so was, that a put, it was a desirable firearm, right? Yeah. It was yeah. A, beautiful. An older model, really well made. Mm -hmm. Very beautiful, very desirable firearm. Um, yeah. But if you're and, starting to feel like a moral, um, imperative to not have this with you because of everything it represents, um, just handing off to someone else doesn't really uh, fit that kind of moral or ethical framework. Right. At, at best, it's passing the buck. At worst, it's yeah. arming someone to do something that that you think is irresponsible. Um, so then I thought, okay, well, why don't I just throw it away? Why don't I get rid of it in some permanent fashion? And so, um, you know, as all of us Northwestern children know, 
um, you know, the Puget Sound is very deep in places. And I thought, well, I'll just, I'll row out I'll go out and visit my folks. I'll row out and I'll drop this thing over the side and nobody will ever see it again, or they'll see it as just like a hunk of iron someday in a net. Um, but I couldn't do that because that felt like throwing away a gift. And that felt like squandering an inheritance that I did in fact value. Um, not that your your like your father would not have been upset with that. He wouldn't have been, no, but I would have been. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think and and I also think that um in some ways just sort of abdicating, saying, you know, I wash my hands of this item, it is gone from my life. That is insufficient. Kind um, of a cop out in a way. A little bit, yeah. It's like the easy so, way out. Yeah. yeah. And and I also just, my I didn't want it. My heart didn't want it, you know, because it it was something that had tied me to my grandfather and he had cared about it. So, you know, that's what really set me on the course um, that that I took in this, in the book, which is to, to remake the weapon into a tool with different affinities. So, yeah, so kind of walk us, th- walk us through this process. And there's some really stunning pictures uh, towards the end of the book as you you kind of reforge this. So w- what is it that you en- end up building and how do you come to that decision? Oh, so I came to the decision, well, I'll take you the second part of your question first. I I came to the decision very slowly, you know, sort of, I was sort of a remedial student when it came to figuring out what the right thing was to do with this. It took me years. Um, but in the end, I decided that what I wanted was a tool for, for specifically for rewilding. So, um, I took this gun, um, and after a series of important conversations with a number of, of folks in my life, um, I connected with this amazing blacksmith named Jeffrey Funk. And Jeffrey is just a, a wonderful man and a character and an amazing craftsman. Um, and he runs something called the New Agrarian School, which is a blacksmithing school um, up in Big Fork, Montana. And Jeffrey and his wife, Betsy, opened their home and their school to me. And um, we undertook to essentially forge this gun into a tree planting spade. Um, and it took a, it took a lot of work. You know, I trained, I would go up there every weekend for, you know, a couple months and we would train at this and we would make practice ones. And, and it was a really dicey, um, proposition because a gun is full of holes, right? That's what makes a gun. Um, and the, the essential quality of anything you're going to dig in the dirt with is that it, um, it has some integrity and it's tough and it's whole. So, um, we had to learn how to, um, or I had to learn, Jeffrey already knew, how to take this gun and um, collapse it basically into something that could be used to plant trees. Um, and we did that. The process is called forge welding. Um, and it basically means getting the steel just, just hot enough that it will molecularly fuse to itself when struck hard. So we did this. We built this amazing tool. Um, it's you know, when I describe it, it looks, this is the coastal kid in me again, but to me, it always looks like a whale sounding, you know, going down uh, because it's got this wide kind of flipper, you know, it's got a wide hoe at the back that looks kind of like a whale's tail. And it's got this long nose. So the flip, the, the, the hoe part of it is for scraping and clearing sod. And then the long nose is for planting the tree. Um, Yeah. So that's what we built. 
And you call it a spade, which I usually associate more just like with a shovel, but it looks more like a a pickaxe hoe, but mm-hmm. not with a sharp pickaxe point, but with kind of like a broader, long one than, as you say, for for planting. What I find really remarkable and, you know, I encourage listeners to go, well, of course, to go pick up your book, but um, you can still see the chambers um, of the revolver chambers like are still visible on on the on that longer broad part of the the spade which yeah we we welded two segments of the of the cylinder and a couple segments of the barrel into it and so every time i use that i'm reminded of of um what it what it came from and what 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 i use it for um is reforestation on our farm um you know we are my wife and i are taking uh, a field of ours that's been cleared and grazed by cattle um, for about a century, and we're replanting it with native vegetation um, using this tool. And for me, that just feels quite honestly therapeutic compared to all the other things I've had to do with guns. Um, it's a wonderful change. Yeah, it's cre- it's create instead of destruction, it's it's creation. Right? Mm-hmm. What was your first experience? You know, head- heading out to the field with this new this new implement with all of this personal and cultural meaning to it. Like what was that experience that, you know, placing it in the ground, that first swing? Right. I mean, you know, I, I wish it was more profound than what I'm about to say, but really it was this feeling of God, I hope this works. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, we had spent a lot of time making sure that it would. Um, But, you know, I think, I think the more, the deeper feelings came later because I worked at this planting, you know, they're probably, there's several hundred trees out there now. Um, so I worked a lot at planting all these trees, protecting them from voles and deer that came immediately to destroy them, um, watering them through a couple of the driest summers that we've had, hottest, driest summers in, in quite a while here. Um, it was when I was out doing those things, you know, stri- you know, using that, using that hoe to, um, you know, strip back, you know, weeds that were growing in around the trees or out there watering or whatever. I I would just think about, I just had this feeling of being in a better relationship with the place that sustained me than I formerly had been. But I want to be really clear about one thing, which is that, uh, oh, I want to be clear about a couple things. The first thing is that I consider what happened with my grandfather's gun to be the merest kind of beginning, right? It's insu- it's insufficient in and of itself um, because there's such a, a massive quantity of injustice and ecological and cultural violence that remains just around my part of the West. So it's, for me, it's a beginning. It's not everything. Um, the other thing is that everything that, that we were doing on our farm, the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes have been doing at a much bigger scale in recent years in this valley, uh, in terms of planting and restoration, and in terms of the stewardship or that reciprocal relationship with land, they've been doing it for thousands of years. So there's nothing new in this. And it's not my idea. And I want to be clear about that. Yeah. How has this um, shift in your view towards firearms, um, you know, has, has it changed your relationship with the landscape? With how you, I mean, of course, you're out there, you know, replanting. But you know, when you go farther out into the mountains and stuff, do you, 
do, do you view your relationship with the land differently? Yeah, I I do a little bit. I think it has to do with attention um, because one of the things that the work of, of the planting has done is it's drawn my attention to like the health and location and particular needs of different plants. Um, and that's causing me to notice those plants when I go out for a run or, you know, go out in the mountains. Um, it's interesting. You know, it's it, And that I think is that reciprocal relationship in a small way in action. It's like, I've, I've paid this attention here and I'm rewarded by seeing the mountains behind our farm a little bit more clearly. Um, it also makes me very aware of, <laughs> of weeds and damage to young plants. So, you know, you go up in the mountains and you'll see some little alder that has been trying to make it in a spot for a while. And you come, come back one day and, and deer have come and, you know, completely destroyed it, rubbing the velvet off their antlers. And you just think, oh man, that little plant had a lot in that. Um, and so, it, I mean, just different kinds of attention. What about your relationship with, you know, your fellow Westerners, you know, other farmers, ranchers, uh, just, you know, people, I mean, you've now published this book, people know who you are. I don't know if you're a local celebrity or not, but um, uh, how how is this playing out kind of um, in social interactions? I guess, you know, I think it's a mistake for me to expect reactions to this book to be any one way or another. Um, Because that's one of the things that is interesting about the West and particularly the rural West that people don't often understand is that there's a greater diversity of opinions than is given credit for. Um, And that's particularly true if you live like I do on um, the territory of a sovereign nation, um, like the the Flathead Reservation. Um, So I've had a lot of people talk differently to me about the book. You know, there are people who think that what I did was selfish and wasteful, you know, that I took a useful tool and I destroyed it. Um, there are people who think that that what I did was necessary and, and it inspires them to do similar things. Um, I've had a lot of different conversations about it and I look forward to more. But one thing that I think is important about this particular book and the way I structured this story is that it's not prescriptive, right? You know, I didn't set out explicitly or or implicitly really to tell people what I thought they should do. I wanted to honestly struggle with something um, and to show people what that struggle looked like and to let them do what they will with it. Um, And I think that the fact that I approach things that way makes people who might otherwise be triggered, which I, it's just, (laughs) the world is lousy with these puns, you know, (laughs) Um, people who might otherwise be triggered by a book about destroying a gun maybe it makes them a little more thoughtful about it to know that, you know, for me, this is just about honestly trying to come to grips with the fact that really any thinking person who has eyes to see can look at the trajectory of history in the West and see that there's been a lot of violence, ecological and cultural. I think we all know that and need to admit it. Um, And this is one way of, of beginning to try to wrestle with it. Yeah, I think I think that's really profound and really important. Um, you know, there's lots of you know, pe- you know, activists and people working on all kinds of issues, um, uh, trying to you know sway the the public towards our point of view on things that need to be done differently. But 
often it's framed in a very prescriptive way, as you say, saying like, well, here's what's wrong and here's what everyone needs to do. Um, but approaching it by just laying out, here's how I wrestled with this and struggled with it and I'm trying to come to peace with your your personal history, the broader, you know, kind of history of settler colonialism uh, in which, you know, our, our forebears took part. Um, that's really, that's profoundly different and maybe in the long run more impactful. Um, less, it's, if, for no other reason that people maybe will be less likely to be reactionary or defensive or feeling like you're accusing them of saying, well, and you're bad because you still do have guns. But that's, that's nowhere in this right. book. Yeah, I think, you know, and maybe another way of, of looking at that or framing that is that I felt so guilty about what my ancestors had done. And, and I still feel, I still feel a measure of guilt about it. But for most of my adult life, that's been a paralyzing feeling of guilt. And to do something, even if it's a tiny thing, like what I, that change I made with the gun and what we're trying to do on our farm, you know, that action, it gives you this feeling of, of momentum. It makes you feel unsettled and unsure, but also you end up thinking like, okay, well, what do I do next? Right. And, and for me, that, that feels, um, you know, that feels like a direction in which I want to go to move away from, you know, feeling paralyzing shame at something really bad that happened that people who share my genes participated in and that we continue to participate in and say, how do we make this place better? I'm, I'm reminded of a conversation I had with my friend, Jermaine White, who used to be the director of education and outreach for the tribes. And she was saying, you know, um, and this is just her perspective as, you know, one member of those tribes, but I think it's, I think she's right. She was saying, listen, you know, sometimes it's just as simple as the last 200 years were bad, bad, you know, bad for native people, bad for native ecology in this place. It's up to us to make sure the next 200 are better. And sometimes for me, just stripping it away to something as simple as that is really helpful because there are so many ways in which we can all contribute to that better to those better centuries and you don't have to figure the whole thing out sometimes all you have to do is just start um and for me that's that's just been i mean it seems obvious when i say it out loud but it took it, it took hearing that from jermaine you know for me to really kind of wrap my head around it and that's been important yeah some awareness is the first step this reminds me of um last week i was down i was at a conference and we there's a tour of um the site of the mountain meadows massacre um, and it was led by a couple of historians who have written a couple of books on it. And um, and and the people, there's a hundred and something people that came out on this tour, and they're mostly just kind of locals. They weren't wasn't academics and stuff. And uh, a lot of them probably have ancestors um, who maybe took took part in the massacre, or they come from communities that kind of have that in their past. And one thing that uh, Rick Turley said, one of these historians, he said, you know, no one's here today is personally responsible for this. For this past violence and none of us were alive then even if some of our ancestors were but we are all responsible for what we do with the knowledge we have about it um and the way you're approaching is it resonates with that um and you know as you as you hinted you know maybe from that conversation with your friend maybe just being aware of it 
is it seems like a, a small step, but I think actually really important and a, and and a step that not enough of us take and that we don't give enough credit for. I mean, I think too that you know what's interesting about the gun is it's a physical object, right? It's a physical representation of that inheritance. But there are other less tangible, you know, inheritances in the world in terms of of privilege, in terms of assumptions, myths about people and places, and and what the correct relationship between humans and land and animals is. Are there and, any of those that you think could be similarly transformed into a more productive? creative constructive like, like something that is destructive in past context that could be transformed as you did this gun well yeah i mean the thing that springs first into my mind is that we have a really mistaken perspective on the correct relationship between uh, between people and their place right so i was telling you about germain one of the things that another thing germain has really knocked through my thick skull is that like is that it's supposed to be reciprocal, right? We're It's supposed to be a reciprocal relationship that can continue perpetually. And that is completely at odds with the notion of winning the West, right? I mean, I, th I think, you know, that I inherited, we all, many of us in this culture, inherit an adversarial relationship with the natural world. Um, and that comes from this idea of like, you know, cutting a living from the fabric of wilderness, right? Which many of us- Extracting. Extracting yeah. or even just clearing a place for yourself, you know? And and so, I mean, for me, that's one of those inheritances that I really want to question. You know, what is, and I and I think about that with this farm, you know, it's, it's a space, you know, we're on the literal, um, you know, the, the literal aftermath or the result of homesteading policies that took land away from native people and put them in non-native hands. And, and also a, a cultural tradition that prioritized cattle grazing above every other thing that could be happening ecologically on a place. And I think that, you know, this tree planting, this work with the gun, for me, it's an open door to walk through in terms of, you know, how else can we begin to think in different and more constructive more creative ways about what to do with these places that we have a chance to take care of in our lives. Yeah. The land does things for you, but you also need to do, do things for the land. If you want the land to care for you, you have to care for the land. Um, that's a different way of viewing. And I think sometimes more challenging for a lot of us who live in suburban or urban settings, um, there, like there is built environment, like the natural world exists in my suburban neighborhood mm -hmm. um but sometimes it's a little harder to see and to think about you know like the water that i might use in my sprinklers it's not coming down an irrigation ditch or canal that i'm you know it's all piped in from along who knows what route well i know actually which route because yeah. i researched it but um but you know we're just a little more di divorced from that natural world uh but i think urban and suburban westerners uh have a relationship with the natural world it may be distant uh their water may be coming from hundred miles, hundreds of miles away, but it's something they should be thinking about and be aware of, and they can still have a reciprocal relationship. Oh, certainly, yeah. I think it's you know I I actually feel like I've got the the easy job because like it's all right here in front of me. You know, I can look out the window and see if I'm doing a, a a good job or a bad job in certain ways. 
with that relationship. It's more abstract. And I think in some ways more challenging if you're living a little bit farther away. Well, uh, I appreciate you spending uh, some time with us in the podcast. Um, Congrats on this book. It was really, it was a really pleasurable read. And even people who have no relationship with firearms, um, I think a lot of Westerners will find some thought provoking things here that will resonate with them in in their lives as well, no, no matter where they're living in the West. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation and uh, yeah, I appreciate, appreciate the time. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll subscribe and listen every month. Please leave us a review on whatever app or platform you're listening through or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates and leave comments. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. We're an interdisciplinary research center that supports academic research and the promotion of public understandings about the North American West. We host regular public lectures, which we live stream, have an annual funding cycle with award, grant, and fellowship categories that nearly anyone researching or working on the region from any disciplinary approach or towards any final product can apply. Learn more at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D Center. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Dahl, Anderson, with an O, dot com. I'll put a link in the episode description. My name is Brendan Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, and just about everything else. So you can direct any praise or critique my way. I'm author and editor of a number of books on the West, borderlands, native peoples, genocide studies, religion, and the environment. Recently, my book, Native But Foreign, Indigenous Immigrants and Refugees in the North American Borderlands, published by Texas A&M University Press in 2018, won the Best Historical Nonfiction Book Award from the Western Writers of America. In an anthology I co-edited with P. Jane Hafen, entitled Essays on American Indian and Mormon History, published by the University of Utah Press in 2019, won the Metcalf Best Anthology Book Prize from the John Whitmer Historical Association. Here at the Red Center, I'm also general editor and project manager of a great digital history, uh, public history project named Intermountain Histories. It's a free mobile app and website, uh, intermountainhistories.org, that curates student-researched and written micro-histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. To contact me about the podcast, my own research, or anything else, head to bwrensink, that's R-E-N-S-I-N-K, Org, or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. Until next month, be well, be curious, and be kind. Cheers. <laughs>